It's the 15th of January, 2017. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This is the Week in Review, where we go over the highlights from the past week. This week we'll talk about what's happening in the world of vaccination and a lot to look forward to. We'll talk about storytelling. I guess I'll tell you my story about why vitamin D is getting under my skin. At the top of the news, um, an interesting study from Japan looks at the use of high-dose and low-dose folic acid in patients taking methotrexate. Uh, I did a Twitter poll at one point and found out that, of course, everybody uses folic acid, but interestingly, it's used quite differently around the world. It's not uncommon for patients to be taking 10 milligrams per week or more as a single dose or multiple doses outside the United States, whereas in the United States, we tend to use one milligram a day when we're on methotrexate. The um, study that was looked at in Japan looked at over 500 patients who were uh, going to start methotrexate and compared those who are on low dose versus those who are on high dose, the dividing point being five milligrams per week or more, and showed that it didn't matter what, what dose you were on, whether you're on low dose of methotrexate, I'm sorry, low doses of folic acid every week or higher doses of folic acid every week, it didn't matter with regard to what the outcomes were as far as hepatotoxicity, liver enzyme elevations, etc. So uh, again, use folic acid and avoid the toxicity. Uh, I, I always say that the that folic acid manages the dangerous toxicity, reduces the rates of hepatotoxicity, it reduces uh, the rates of drug discontinuations. I believe it severely um, and dramatically reduces the rates of uh, a rare phenomenon, acute hypersensitivity pneumonitis. Uh, a study from uh, a large cohort of lupus patients, um, actually it was a meta-analysis of 47 studies and, and, and looked at thousands of patients with lupus trying to identify the frequency of the metabolic syndrome. Overall, they found that the frequency of metabolic syndrome in lupus was 26% and that when they compared lupus patients with those who didn't have lupus, uh, it was increased, that the uh, odds ratio is one88 suggesting an 88% increase in the risk of metabolic syndrome, or nearly a double, the doubling of the risk if you have lupus. Uh, as if there is not enough to deal with in lupus patients already, it's something we do need to be watchful of as far as managing comorbidities. Vitamin D, uh, if you look at the literature this week and vitamin D, what's out there, guess what? It reduces and manages uh, um, uh, neuropathy. Actually, it, what was shown was those who are low in vitamin D have more neuropathy with um, rheumatoid arthritis. It's also been shown that it's associated with multiple sclerosis and alopecia areata. I mean, this magical molecule called vitamin D really is the anti-kryptonite to mankind. Uh, and, and I'm being quite sarcastic about that. Uh, vitamin D stories are all over the place. It's associated with everything. Why not just let's say that vitamin D is probably important in bone health and in immune function and that most people are vitamin D deficient because they live indoors and the more deficient you are, more of a sign of unwellness it's associated with. Let's sort of stop with all the associations. Um, I take vitamin D every day. Have I ever measured my level? No. I think it's goofy and I think that these kind of reports are really goofy. Uh, goofy or not, what about drug holidays with bisphosphonates? As you know, there's been a, quite a move towards 
stopping bisphosphonates and, and giving patients drug holidays, especially if they've been on the drug for a long period of time. Uh, a cohort study of 183 osteoporotic women. Now, so they have osteoporosis range DEXA scores, and they've been receiving a bisphosphonate, first-line bisphosphonate, for three to five years. And they, and, uh, and they looked at the patients who went on a uh, drug holiday versus those who did not. Now, there was an imbalance here. This is not a randomized trial. There's no controls really here. This is an observational study, but um, a minority of the people went on a bisphosphonate drug holiday and, and they were followed for a period of time and compared to those that continued the bisphosphonate. And guess what? Those who went on bisphosphonates had a higher rate, 44% higher rate of new fractures. I think this drug holiday thing may end up becoming a big problem in, in, uh, as we start to look at larger and larger cohorts. But this is a small cohort that tells us that it may not be a wise thing, especially if you need the bisphosphonate because you have osteoporosis. An announcement from Sandoz came this week that tells you that we're going to get more biosimilars, in this case, uh, rituximab biosimilar. Uh, we've seen a lot of TNF inhibitor biosimilars. Now we're going to start to see rituximab being developed and soon to be approved. Um, a study of the use of recurrent uh, TB testing in patients who go on ustekinumab. Um, ustekinumab is an IL-1223 inhibitor and uh, bias biology is not supposed to be associated with uh, TB and opportunistic infections, but um, it is in the label and you do, if you're going to start on Stellara and any other 1223 or 23 alone inhibitor such as guxelcomab, you're probably going to have to do PPD testing or quantifieron testing because it's in the label. It's in the label because it's in the way the clinical trials were done. Will patients going on those drugs get more TB? The answer is no. Uh, and in this particular study, looked at the use of repeat testing in a population at high risk. This comes from Korea, which I would call, or I'm sorry, Taiwan, which is a higher than the United States risk, a significantly higher. And I call those TB land, places where TB is endemic and um, can be expected. And in their studies, they had a, um, uh, with continued use of Stellara, they showed a seroconversion rate that's much, much higher than you expect in the United States, but that's because they're in TB land, 7.3%. So by itself, Stellara does not cause um, TB and, and shouldn't cause it. it. The risk of TB is really related, related to your exposure risk, uh, as, was, was, as was seen in this uh, study in Taiwan. Um, an interesting article from Rheumatology looked at the uh, biology of vasculitis, especially large vessel vasculitis, uh, uh, including tachyosis and giant cellulitis, and made a case for um, that there's two things going on in vasculitis, that there's systemic inflammation that is being uh, prevalent and, uh, and requires steroids and IL-6 inhibition, and that's driven by a Th17 response, which involves... Uh, IL-17 and IL-6, and that's quite different than the, the, in the inflammation that you see in blood vessels, uh, where that's more of a Th1 response where you know, IL-12 and especially gaminoferon can mediate a lot of vascular uh, inflammation and what happens uh, in the vasculature. So for instance, you may control systemic inflammation, but patients may go on to still have vascular events uh, that are driven by a different biology. This needs to be considering when managing and uh, monitoring patients with uh, especially large vessel vasculitis. It's an interesting read. Uh, Abvi announced this week that their Select Beyond study, a trial being done in patients who have uh, received advanced therapies, including TNF inhibitors, 
uh, and then were given um, a jack, their jack inhibitor, their jack one inhibitor called uh, upadacitinib, that their uh, results were really good. They had a 52% um, low disease activity state and a 32% remission rate at uh, six months. Um, and, you know, really good ACR 20, 50, 70 scores. But the caveat here is that there was an imbalance in safety signals, specifically serious adverse events were seen only in the 15 and 30 milligram uh, dose groups and not in the placebo group. They had 5% SAEs and 7% SAEs when you were on uh, upadacitinib. Uh, and the same can be said for deaths, that there was one death in 15 milligrams, one death at um, 30 milligrams and none in the placebo population. These numbers are small, uh, but the, unfortunately there is an imbalance and that will um, shine the light on, uh, on this particular kind of outcome as they look at the total data set. Uh, in, they did note that they had very few events that were thrombotic that were being seen and not none in their prior trial. In the second trial, uh, there was, I think, one thrombotic event. So that's good news. But again, this is uh, good news and a little bit of bad news. But nonetheless, I think uh, that we need to see more data play out over time. A study of 200 scleroderma patients compared them to 100 normal controls and looked at uh, esophageal motility studies and basically showed that severe esophageal dysmotility uh, is not uncommon in patients with uh, scleroderma. And it is actually seen with limited disease and um, diffuse disease, even localized disease for that matter. But nonetheless, uh, the association with severe dysmotility is mostly seen in those with longstanding disease those who have coexistent interstitial lung disease, uh, and those who have higher GI scores and those who have lower health-related quality of life scores. Uh, the good news uh, that came out of the FDA this week was the um, unanimous vote by the advisory committee to um, approve the uh, new GSK herpes zoster subunit vaccine called Shingrix. Um, and that is uh, in follow-up to their ZOE 50 and ZOE 70 trials that were published and written about earlier in room now. These were published in, Jane, in a, the New England Journal. Uh, again, it was a unanimous vote. Uh, it was, the, the, the vaccine is a very good um, outcome as far as not being 90% effective at four years out and that there's no loss of efficacy um, with increasing age of the population. Uh, it also reduces, significantly reduces the risk of uh, post-herpetic neuralgia also also over 90%. Um, and again, these results are maintained in a, in a very, very old, greater than 70 years of age population. One of the downsides of this is that it will be more expensive um, and that it will require multiple injections that have a fairly, uh, um, um, an issue of constitutional manifestations, myalgias uh, and arthralgias and you know other things, other constitutional things It'll make it a bit of a, a pain in the neck, but and it's uh, but the good news is that this is an, an inactive shingles vaccine compared to Zostavax, which is a live virus vaccine. This vaccine, when it is available, could be used in patients taking DMARDs on biologics who have immunosuppression, etc. Now, mind you, there are no trials being done in patients with, with the, that particular profile, for instance, rheumatoid arthritis on biologics. But based on the biology, it should be safe to be given in such a cohort. But again, it's been recommended for approval by the advisory committee. We await the decision of the FDA panel. Um, a nice uh, article written by Cassie Calabrese this week says that it's, it's flu season and rheumatologists should get in line and should be vaccinating their patients. 
she makes a strong case for the fact that um, sometimes we believe that primary care is doing it, primary care thinks that we might be doing it. The bottom line is the patient falls between the cracks and doesn't get vaccinated because no one is taking responsibility and pushing it. So it is our responsibility. These are our patients. They are immunosuppressed by steroids and maybe by other drugs that we use. Um, it is best to get the flu vaccine done in September and October, but it's never too late. You can be giving it even as late as uh, late January and February. Um, it, the flu season does peak uh, in, uh, in January and February, but it can even go out as far as next May 2018. She makes a strong case for us taking responsibility as well for um, uh, pneumococcal vaccination, including the use of the uh, Prevnar 13 vaccine. So again, read that. It's an interesting article. It gives you some tips on how and when to do this. And then today, the last day, the last of the week, we, we, I published a blog of my own on storytelling, um, really because I was pointed that way by Ronan Kavanaugh uh, about the value of storytelling in medicine and how it's become a bit of a, um, a popular uh, avocation, if you will, amongst uh, physicians to either write or speak um, uh, and tell their stories about patients, patient care, and their medical experiences and the inside of that. Uh, Ronan has a, a, a series he's starting in, in Ireland that's going to be called Bedside Stories, and you can read about that. But story is a tremendous way of teaching, selling, um, uh, convincing, and having an impact on a population. Um, it is replete in our society. It's, it's, it's used in television and movies. Uh, story is a three-act play, a beginning, middle, and end. Um, an introduction, um, a twist, and then a resolution. Um, stories should be employed more frequently, in not only in our lectures and how we talk to each other, but also in maybe how we educate patients um, who often have a hard time understanding uh, the medical terminology and the complexity of the numbers and the biology of what it is that we intend to do with them with regard to their care. Look at it. You too can be a storyteller. That's it for this week on RoomNow.com. Go to the website to look at these links and others. Um, follow us on RoomNow.com. Look forward to what we're going to present at ACR. You'll be surprised.